Chapter 7, Part 2 of Christian Non-Resistance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7, Part 2 of Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings, Illustrated and Defended, by Aidan Ballou. Under What Circumstances the Country Might Have a Non-Resistant Government let us have two-thirds of the people of the United States, including that portion who are, or would be thought, Christians, philanthropists, people of intelligence, and orderly citizens, once firmly committed to non-resistance, as explained and illustrated in this work, with even a large share of imperfection still lingering about them, and the government might triumphantly dispense with its army, navy, militia, capital punishment, and all manner of injurious inflictions. Under the light necessary to effect so general a change of public sentiment, a considerable portion of the people would have reconstructed neighborhood society by voluntary association, in such a manner as nearly to do away intemperance, idleness, debauchery, miseducation, poverty, and brutality, and to ensure the requisite inducements, means, and opportunities for great self-improvement and social usefulness. The consequence would be that very few poor creatures would remain without a strong moral guardianship of wise and true friends to look after their welfare. Wholesome cure would be applied with vast success to the ignorant and vicious, and at the same time powerful preventives, beyond estimation, applied to the newborn generation. Under such circumstances, suppose a truly Christian government to administer the general affairs of the several states and of the nation. How little would they have to do? How well might they perform that little, and how trifling would be the burthens of it to officers or people? It would hardly require thirty millions of dollars to carry such a government through a single year. They would not expend eighty percent of all their receipts on ships of war, forts, arsenals, troops, etc., etc. If they expended half this sum on the reformation of the few remaining vicious, the right education of youth, and the encouragement of virtue among the whole people, their work would be cut short in righteousness. If here and there a disorderly individual broke over the bounds of decency, the whole force of renovated public sentiment would surround and press in upon him like the waters of the ocean, and slight, uninjurious force would prevent personal outrage in the most extreme cases. And every day the causes of such extreme cases would be undergoing the process of annihilation. Meantime, England, and other great nations, between whom and ourselves there is such a frequent and increasing familiarity of intercourse, would vie with ours, not which should have the strongest army and navy, and be able to do the most mischief, but which should lead off in the glorious work of reforming, improving, and blessing the human race. Patriotism would then no longer strut its regimentals, recount its ruffian exploits, and provoke quarrels with fellow men for the crime of having been born over sea, or on the other side of a mountain or river. It would glory in superior justice, forbearance, meekness, forgiveness, charity. O glorious era, I see thee coming to smile on my country and the world. Thou art advancing in silent majesty on the remote verge of the blue horizon. Clouds of dust intervene between thee and the uncouth present. They conceal thee from the gaze of the boisterous and bustling multitude. The prophets even can but dimly discern thy beautiful outline. But thou art drawing nearer. Angels are thy heralds. The morning stars are singing together in thy train, and the sons of God shout for joy. 
In due time the heaven shall kiss the earth in thy presence, and the earth shall be restored to the bliss of heaven. View of Present Order of Things and Remedies But we must turn back from this vision, and listen again to the scoffs of skepticism, the growls of frowning bigotry, and the jargon of Babylon the Great. We must hear those who make the sword, the gibbet, and the dungeon their gods, denounce the doctrines of mercy, and extol the efficacy of cruelty. The world is full of criminals, they say, horrid criminals, ravening like wolves for the prey, and it is presumption to think of trusting to love, mercy, forbearance, and uninjurious restraints. The wicked must be slain. The unprincipled must be threatened with destruction. The lawless must be held at bay by the terrors of the halter and the cell. Mankind are too depraved to be held and treated as brethren. This is the language of our professedly wise and upright men, in what are falsely supposed to be the first ranks of society. But it is the language of men who need to be born again before they can enter into the kingdom of God. Pharisees and Sadducees, haughty religionists and moralists, who know not their own hearts, nor what manner of spirit they are of. They look not into the causes of crime. They feel not for their fellow creatures, who were born and have lived under the worst possible circumstances. They see not that nine-tenths of the crimes of those whom they glory in bringing to punishment might have been prevented, had good people, so called, been good enough to care for others beyond the precincts of their own blood relationship. They themselves are great sinners, and need great mercy. Yet they have little compassion on their fellow sinners of a lower grade. They live in a sort of conventional decency, and imagine it to be true morality. They are clothed with the fashionable garments of a superfine selfishness, and vainly imagine themselves acceptable to God. They are supremely covetous of this world's goods, and revel in the midst of extravagance, yet think only of the guilt and deserved punishment of thieves and robbers. Let them spare their maledictions against the punishable class of their fellow creatures. Let each one of them seriously ask the following questions. How much better am I by nature than these murderers, robbers, thieves, and wretched culprits, whom I so much detest? Had I been born of their parents, been brought up as they were brought up, been neglected by the better classes as they were neglected, been tempted as they have been tempted, and been treated as they have been treated, should I have been at this moment what I am? Should I not have been one among them, hated and hunted down as a hopeless reprobate? How much attention have I given, in my whole life, to the consideration of the causes which make one person to differ from another? How much time have I spent in earnest endeavors to prevent my fellow creatures from falling into these crimes, in educating them while children, providing them a good home of industry and comfort in youth, and in inducing them in mature age to lead orderly lives? How much thought, how much affection, how much time, how much of my money have I devoted to such purposes? Have I considered these things? Have I brought up my family to consider them? Have I proposed them to my neighbors? Have I brought them before my religious or literary associates? Have I tried by precept, persuasion, and example to unite my friends in preventing pauperism, vice, and crime? Or have I thought chiefly of deterring and punishing crime? Have I been spending nearly all my attention and efforts on myself and my family to obtain wealth, distinction, fame, self-aggrandizement, and self-indulgence? Have I not been living all this time to myself, and for my own little circle of relations and friends? 
What has my religion done towards making me a Christian after the pattern of Jesus? What has my morality amounted to but worldly decency? And have I not done some things in secret, in spite of all my religion and morality, which if known to the world would plunge me into the depths of disgrace? What have I to boast of? Why am I so intent on punishing, instead of forgiving and reforming my less fortunate fellow-sinners? Would not such a self-examination as this essentially humble and chasten many a self-righteous soul? The truth is, if one hundredth part of what the better classes of society now acquire contrary to the law of love, and expend on themselves to their positive hurt, were faithfully devoted to the prevention and reformation of crime, scarce an offender would remain in society. If no more than what is expended in detecting, trying, and punishing criminals were judiciously applied to their work of prevention and reformation, it would accomplish ten times more for society than it now does. But alas, as undertakers live and flourish by burying the dead, so there are not a few in the present organization of society who live by hunting and punishing criminals. And yet many of the worst offenders luxuriate in perfect impunity, fortified by bulwarks impregnable to the penal laws. At the same time, the ordinary acquisition of property, by what are called the better classes, the criers out for punishment punishment, is only a fashionable species of gambling and extortion, in which the cunning, the fortunate, and the unscrupulous carry off the stakes amid the perpetual grumblings of the unlucky losers. Besides this, intemperance and licentiousness are permitted to allure millions through their licensed portals to the chambers of hell, and slavery shakes her whips and chains over a sixth portion of a professedly free people under the protection of our star-spangled banner. Is it any wonder that such a state of things, such a religion, such a morality, such unbridled acquisitiveness, such selfishness, and such oppression of the governing portion, should breed, foster, and perpetuate all manner of vice and crime in the underclasses of society? Not at all. Therefore, Christian non-resistance protests against the wickedness of the punishing as well as the punished classes. It proposes and insists on a radical reform. And when this reform shall have gone forward to a certain point, a government untainted by military power or penal injury will be both practicable and certain. To show that such a government is possible, I will now present a clear, discriminating, irrefutable extract from Mr. Guizot, Prime Minister of France. Extract from Mr. Guizot's Lectures is it not forming a gross and degrading idea of government to suppose that it resides only, to suppose that it resides chiefly, in the force which it exercises to make itself obeyed in its coercive element? Let us quit religion for a moment, and turn to civil government. Trace with me, I beseech you, the simple march of circumstances. Society exists. Something is to be done, no matter what, in its name and for its interest. A law has to be executed, some measure to be adopted a judgment to be pronounced. Now certainly there is a proper method of supplying these social wants. There is a proper law to make, a proper measure to adopt, a proper judgment to pronounce. Whatever may be the matter in hand, whatever may be the interest in question, there is, upon every occasion, a truth which must be discovered, and which ought to decide the matter, and govern the conduct to be adopted. The first business of government is to seek this truth, is to discover what is just, reasonable, and suitable to society. 
When this is found, it is proclaimed, the next business is to introduce it to the public mind, to get it approved by the man upon whom it is to act, to persuade them that it is reasonable. In all this, is there anything coercive? Not at all. Suppose now that the truth which ought to decide upon the affair, no matter what, suppose I say that the truth being found and proclaimed, all understanding should be at once convinced, all wills at once determined, that all should acknowledge that the government was right and obey it spontaneously. There is nothing yet of compulsion, no occasion for the employment of force. Does it follow, then, that a government does not exist? Is there nothing of government in all this? To be sure, there is, and it has accomplished its task. Compulsion appears not till the resistance of individuals calls for it, till the idea, the decision which authority has adopted, fails to obtain the approbation or the voluntary submission of all. Then government employs force to make itself obeyed. This is a necessary consequence of human imperfection, an imperfection which resides as well in power as in society. There is no way of entirely avoiding this. Civil governments will always be obliged to have recourse, in a certain degree, to compulsion. Still it is evident they are not made up of compulsion, because, whenever they can, they are glad to do without it, to the great blessing of all, and their highest point of perfection is to be able to discard it, and trust to means purely moral, to their influence upon the understanding, so that, in proportion as government can dispense with compulsion and force, the more faithful it is in its true nature, and the better it fulfills the purpose for which it is sent. This is not to shrink, this is not to give away, as people commonly cry out. It is merely acting in a different manner, in a manner more general and powerful. Those governments which employ the most compulsion perform much less than those which scarcely ever have recourse to it. Government, by addressing itself to the understanding, by engaging the free will of its subjects, by acting by means purely intellectual, instead of contracting, expands and elevates itself. It is then that it accomplishes most, and attains to the highest objects. On the contrary, it is when a government is obliged to be constantly employing its physical arm, that it becomes weak and restrained, that it does little, and does that little badly. The essence of government, then, by no means resides in compulsion, in the exercise of brute force. It consists more especially of a system of means and powers, conceived for the purpose of discovering upon all occasions what is best to be done, for the purpose of discovering the truth, which by right ought to govern society, for the purpose of persuading all men to acknowledge this truth, to adopt and respect it willingly and freely. Thus I think I have shown that the necessity for, and the existence of a government, are very conceivable, even though there should be no room for compulsion, even though it should be absolutely forbidden. History of Civilization in Europe, Lecture 5 Conclusion Is this satisfactory? Is this conclusive? It ought to be so. It is not the language of a non-resistant enthusiast, a utopian dreamer, but of Monsieur Guizot, the intelligent and accomplished Prime Minister of Louis Philippe. Let the arrogant condemners of the idea of a pure Christian government resolve the matter, and consider whether their skepticism arises out of knowledge or ignorance. To a sound mind, the case admits of little doubt. The great prerequisite to the establishment of such a government has already been pointed out. It is religious, moral, and intellectual reform among the people, superinducing in them a more Christian faith, 
a more Christian conscience, a more enlightened intellect, and a purer morality. This noble work non-resistance espouses, and will unfalteringly prosecute to its blessed consummation. To carry it forward, the faithful will lay aside pecuniary, political, military, and all worldly ambition, every weight that encumbers, and press forward to the mark for the prize of their high calling in Christ Jesus, enduring the cross and despising the shame, till they enter into his glory and partake of the true majesty of his kingdom. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and the kingdoms of this world shall at length become his in righteousness and peace. I've thought at gentle and ungentle hour of many an act and giant shape of power, of bruised rights and flourishing bad men, and virtue wasting heavenwards from a den, brute force and fury, and the devilish drouth, of the foul cannon's ever-gaping mouth, and the bride-widowing sword, and the harsh bray, the sneering trumpet sends across the fray, and all which blights the people-thinning star, that selfishness invokes the horsed war, panting along with many a bloody mane, I've thought of all this pride, and all this pain, and all the insolent plenitudes of power. And I declare by this most quiet hour that power itself has not one half the might of gentleness, tis want to all true wealth, the uneasy madman's force of the wise health. Blind downward beating to the eyes that see, noise to persuasion, doubt to certainty. The consciousness of strength in enemies, who must be strained upon, or else they rise, or as all shrieks and clangs with which a sphere, undone and fired, could rake the midnight ear, compared with that vast dumbness nature keeps, throughout her starry deeps, most old and mild and awful and unbroken, which tells a tale of peace beyond whate'er was spoken. Lay Hunt The End End of Chapter 7 Part 2. End of Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings, Illustrated and Defended, by Aidan Ballew.